Good morning. We are back in the book of Acts, and not only are we back in the book of Acts, we're going to finish it this year. What? Yes. Happy New Year. I know that uh, New Year actually started last year at that service, but I missed that service. I was worshiping on live stream. Thank you, uh, tech team. Uh, while in Fullerton with, with family, and so that was a good time. But we are getting back into the series in the book of Acts, and the series is called The Acts of the Apostles by the Holy Spirit. And today, as James read, we have made it all the way to chapter 17. When we last spent time in this letter, we were in chapter 16, the second half, where Paul and Silas, after being in prison for their faith, experienced a violent earthquake. And so much so that their prison cell and the shackles that they were in were opened. But they did not escape because they understood that their jailer would be killed by his authorities if they had gotten away. But God made a heavenly appointment in that passage that we studied many months ago where the Lord, uh, or where we saw the jailer and all of his household become followers of Jesus and they were baptized. That experience was God using a miraculous circumstance to get their attention. Today, Paul and Silas are messengers to point out the catalyst for the turn of events that we're going to study today, which is another way that God gets our attention through reason and logic. As, as long as I have uh, basically heard about Christianity, there have been the subtle hint to believe that In order to believe in a Christian God, it's a little superstitious, it's a little ignorant, and you have to have blind faith to do so. And while I'm not only, uh, not only did I used to believe this, I used to use this against Christians. I've been a follower of Jesus now longer in my earthly life than I haven't been a follower of Jesus because I became a believer when I was 20 and I'm no longer 20. Now let's be real. Some people who identify as Christians do have a blind faith. They do have an inherited faith, a cultural nominal faith, perhaps. But that isn't what we're talking about today. We, and as this passage we will study today, believe what God says about things. So much so that we search the scriptures, which is going to be something we're going to talk about consistently today, seeing what he implies and intends for the truth to be as we read the scriptures even more than our subjective experiences. So here we go. Acts chapter 17, verse 1, as I butcher some cities. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilophius, okay, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. I got that one right. Where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now remember, Luke, the doctor, the one who writes the letter known as Luke, is also the one who's writing this letter known as Acts to what we presume is a Roman official named Theophilus, who I tend to refer to as Theo. And as he writes, he just skims over these two cities that Paul and his companions have spent time in that either had very little effectiveness or just didn't have any experiences to speak of that we had to put in the Bible. But they did stop in Thessalonica. Now, it's a city that probably most of us are pretty familiar with. If you were a part of our last community group's time, we went through the book of 1 Thessalonians, a letter written to the church in Thessalonica, written by the Apostle Paul. And if you're familiar with the letter, it seems to have a lot of uh, what I would call an encouraging tone from Paul as he speaks to this church in Thessalonica. Verse 2. 
As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you, Paul says, is the Messiah. Paul then, as was his custom, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles, as Luke notes, went into the synagogue for three consecutive Saturdays and reasoned with the Jews that were within the attendance of the synagogue. For the Jew in the first century, there was a sense of awe of God and the fact that he would send a Messiah. The Jews liked this idea. They worshiped God for this reason, but they had a misconception of who or what the Messiah was going to be like. They would read the scriptures and probably, like many people in churches today, synagogues today, and mosques today, would focus on the passages and verses that they liked and wouldn't necessarily wrestle with some of the tougher and harder stuff to understand, especially when it came to looking at those passages within the context in which the author wrote them. So what did Paul emphasize in his reasoning as we read this verse? Well, it wasn't how perfect Christians have to be, because we're not. Nor was it persuasion through a prosperity message. What did he point to? He pointed to a reason to believe. A reason to believe. And today, I'm going to give you some reasons to believe. If you're a follower of Jesus, these are to strengthen your faith. If you're yet to commit to Jesus, if you're yet to say yes to Jesus, then My hope is that you would start to see why these Christians believe what they believe, because these are some really good reasons to believe. Here's the first one based on what we've read, a reason to believe. Jesus suffered, he died, and he rose again. Jesus suffered, he died, and he rose again. Jesus lives this perfect life. He dies on a cross for the sins of mankind, and he physically rises from the dead. This is what I call the happening of the gospel message. This is what happened. And as believers, we rely on this over our own feelings. We depend on this. We remind ourselves of this. We proclaim this. We fixate our eyes on this. We live in this. We make decisions based on this. We care for others because of this. Jesus didn't suffer and go on his way. Jesus suffered and died on a cross. But the good news doesn't end there. Jesus resurrected, and that changes everything. Can I get an amen, Daniel? Thank you. Did you guys, as you drove up, some of you guys come down to Dolores, but did you guys see how Pastor Mike changed our sign outside? It now says, join us Sundays for the gospel. Yeah, right? Which is pretty true. And don't you think that, like, that's something we want to focus on as a community? We don't come here and talk about six ways each of us can become a better Sagittarius. Because you're not a Sagittarius. I am. But we open God's word, and we proclaim the revealed truth of this letter written by God to his creation about the good news, the gospel, that Jesus exists, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, and through all of that, we have an invitation offered to us to know and grow in Jesus Christ. That's some good news, church. And that reasoning with the Jews came from the fact that Jesus, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, lived, he suffered, he died, he rose again. There was no more important message that Paul could clearly make to these Jews, no more important event than Jesus exchanging his life for ours. And Paul was clear from the very scriptures that the Jews held so dear, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, 
making known that this Jesus, the Messiah, in whom the Scriptures spoke about, was the one who lived and died and rose again. So most of us, if you've been in this church, if you study your Bible, especially if you have Jewish heritage, you're probably familiar with the book of Isaiah. And so this was probably something Paul was pointing to in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus is born. Here's what Isaiah says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And as Paul proclaimed this message from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Old Testament, I wonder if those in attendance vocalized or internalized this question that we hear from the Ethiopian treasurer in Acts chapter 8. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet, he was reading Isaiah, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with this very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Paul, like Philip, led by the Holy Spirit through the reason of the scriptures that many already believed, explained how Jesus was the fulfillment of what was promised for the forgiveness of sin. So here's your second reason to believe. Jesus fulfilled what was written before he was born. Jesus fulfilled what was written in the Old Testament. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a coincidence. This was God's plan. Drake, sorry. And by Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, he made it clear that this wasn't just a option, this was the only way to God the Father. So what was the result of Paul's boldness? To teach this within the synagogues of people who were very comfortable in their own religion. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. This message struck a chord with some of the Jews, many of the God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women, Luke writes, because this message of grace found in the plan, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus as the Messiah and the Christ was what many of these people had heard was to come and lo and behold, here he was. Maybe not how they expected, but he fulfilled over and over and over again what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. What is so noteworthy about this is that these Jews, these God-fearing Greeks, and these prominent women who believe became the church in Thessalonica, which as we studied 1 Thessalonians, Paul had such an encouraging tone and wrote about their faith and how wonderful they were and how God was using them. But with belief of some comes opposition. Verse 5. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. Doesn't that sound like your grandma talking about somebody? But, <laughs> so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house. Too bad Jason isn't here. I could point to him. Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas, and in order to bring them out to the crowd where the kingdom of God is advancing church. Opposition and conflict will be present. Now you can blame the devil, a lot of people do. You can blame our sin nature. Either way, it's pretty consistent that the spreading of the gospel will be met with hate and anger and opposition. Sounds great, right? Who's down to go knock on doors now? 
Reality is that while it isn't easy, there is no more fulfilling feeling than being used by God to see someone go from death to life. But the Jews, they were jealous, or in some translations, full of envy. That doesn't sound as bad, I guess. Because people were being persuaded by this message of Jesus, and so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. Now, this meant bad reputations of people, so in our vernacular, they were shady. And they were gathered together into a mob and began a riot, which led some to go to Jason's house looking for Paul and Silas. Jason, from where we see in this passage and where Paul will speak about him uh, later on, we assume that he uh, is the same Jason that Paul talks about in Romans. In Romans 16, 21, Paul's writing, and he says, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, if anyone's looking for a name for your kid, there you go, by my fellow Jews. Jason is a Jew also, possibly a Roman citizen who is a believer in Christ, and financially, as we will see in the next passage of Acts, someone who is wealthy enough to help Paul and Silas financially. Verse 6. But then they did not find them. They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. The argument of these jealous Jews was that Paul and Silas and the other believers were causing an uproar in Thessalonica, as was their reputation in other cities with people opposing the message of the gospel. And then to say they are attempting to uprise by claiming there is another king other than Caesar, which, as we have studied over and over and over again through the scriptures is that people often in the gospel accounts were focused on the material and Jesus was focused on the eternal. Jesus is the eternal king, the one that rules and reigns over the kingdom of God. And these followers of Jesus knew that there was more to this world than the temporal and the material because a man who claimed to be God died and rose again from the dead, and that changed everything. This makes me think about uh, in the book of Mark, or the gospel according to Mark, where Jesus is being trapped by some religious authorities. Well, at least they're attempting to trap Jesus by speaking about the physical, and yet once again, Jesus goes to the eternal. Here's what it says in Mark 12. It says, later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words. Good luck. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, I've heard this passage used to explain why we should pay our taxes. Yeah, pay your taxes. Don't be dumb, okay? 
But I don't think that was all that Jesus was implying here. And I've heard this used as the reason we ought to give of our money because it's all God's anyway, right? Which is true. But I think the implication here in this passage with a consistent view amongst all of scripture is that people wanted to talk about the material when Jesus came to rule and reign eternally. And that when we give to God what is God's, we give him all the glory and the praise. Does that manifest itself in giving financially to the ministry of God? Sure. But there are a lot of people that give money to what they believe is God without investing in the kingdom for the furthering of the gospel. Because internally, they think if they give money to the church or they give money to a missionary, it somehow justifies them. But you can't fool God. And when we give, the scriptures say that we give out of a joyful heart, knowing that God can provide and he chooses to provide through the sacrifice of his people. So thank you to those of you who give here at Church of the Valley for the ministry here. We could not do what we do. We wouldn't have the staff that we have. We wouldn't be able to use the, these grounds for the furthering of the gospel. But, but let, me, let me be clear, because I don't know who gives, so I'm not talking to you. I have no idea. But some of you, the next step of your spiritual walk is to give money towards the mission of the furthering of the gospel. So hear that. Verse 8. When they heard this, the crowd and the city and the officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. This is where we get the idea that Jason probably was a financial partner. It's implied that he posted bail for himself and perhaps some of the others who were with them. Jason's contribution, while not very obvious, was that he was a financial blessing to the furthering of the gospel. He worshiped through the sacrifice of his finances, which the apostles and even Jesus during his earthly ministry needed and used for God's glory. Verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, this can be seen two ways, that Paul and Silas were skipping out of town after posting their bond, but most commentators agree that by being let go after this arrest, like other towns, they just wanted Paul and Silas to get out of town. Stop causing an uproar. Go away. So at night, they sent them to Berea, a town that is memorialized today by what is known as the Bereans. Have you ever noticed a Bible in a hotel room? That is by a ministry called the Bereans who have placed the Bible in your hotel room in the nightstand. Verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were of noble character, more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Ouch. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now Luke writes about the Berean Jews that they were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. And while this can be read as throwing shade upon those in Thessalonica, throwing them under the bus, this has more to do with the contrast of how the Berean Jews viewed the scriptures. They were more tolerant and open to the gospel through the Hebrew scriptures. They received the message with great eagerness while also examining the scriptures to verify what Paul was saying. This is a bigger deal today than I think ever. Religion has been replaced with spirituality. It lacks truth, foundation, 
and it exalts feelings over doctrine. For the Bereans, they felt led to look at the same scriptures that Paul was commenting on and read them for themselves. Church, this is why we teach through the Bible. I liked the series we just did, but man, did I want to get back into a book of the Bible. You know why? Because I can't dictate what we're saying. I have to actually read it and explain what it says. And this is why we encourage you to read the scriptures on your own. This is why the last community group semester that we had, we spent a lot of the emphasis of that as we were studying 1 Thessalonians on big theology word hermeneutics or interpretation of scripture because we believe in the God of the word, but when we come to the word of God, there ought to be some interpretive guidelines that help us understand the meaning of what's being read rather than guessing or basing what we think it means on our mood or our feelings. The Bereans were willing to search the scriptures, not to argue with Paul, but to cement what they believe, to understand, to understand better and to avoid error. So here's another reason to believe. Jesus is the point. Nope, back. Jesus is the point of the entire Bible. Jesus is the point of the entire Bible. So now we have three reasons to believe. And when we keep in mind that Jesus is the point from Genesis to Revelation, when we keep that in mind, reading any of the scriptures brings on a new purpose and it brings on a new life to it. The Old Testament makes more sense as it foreshadows the coming of Jesus. The law makes more sense to show mankind's need for Jesus. Marriage makes more sense because it's a reflection of Jesus and his church. And times makes more sense because there is a God who does and will restore all things that are broken. And the Bible becomes less of a map to a happy life and more of a love letter from God to his creation to know how to love him back. But how we interpret scripture matters. This is something we say pretty consistently. Now, years ago, for those of you who know me, You've probably even heard the story, but years ago, I was a traveling speaker, and I would preach all over the, this continent, I guess, around the country, but my primary audience was the Bay Area. I'd spend most of my time speaking in the Bay Area, and I would teach my evangelism training called Compelled to different churches, schools, uh, organizations, and contexts to help people who trusted Jesus to be equipped to share the hope that they have in a relational, relatable, and intentional way. One of the churches that I taught this at eventually uh, asked me to come on to their staff as an interim pastor and a consultant. And while I was teaching my training, a younger man than me on the staff of the church came to me to tell me that my interpretation on a passage was unorthodox and a bit confusing. Well, imagine my surprise <gasps> and my defensiveness to this younger man who in my opinion always seemed to want to act like he knew better than others around him. So in a one-on-one -on -one meeting, he addressed what he considered to be incorrect in one of my teachings, and we studied the scriptures together, sort of. And he pointed out what he saw and what I saw differently. Now, if I'm honest, at the time I was pretty pompous. Past tense, I hope. And I went to one of my mentors, who had taught me the way in which I interpreted that passage, and we talked. And he affirmed what I had said, but you know what I didn't do? You know what I failed to attempt to do on my own? I didn't go to the scriptures myself. 
I didn't look at the context or the other passages. I didn't search the scriptures. Instead, I went to someone I knew would affirm my opinion on what I believed was right. Eventually, through the grace of our God, I began to have an overwhelming sense of need to search the scriptures, to allow context to determine meaning, to allow scripture to interpret scripture, to read the word of God with the son of God in mind, to read the word of God, which reveals the will of God written by the spirit of God to be what we hold in a high regard rather than my feelings, rather than culture, rather than the majority. But I would look to the word in whom became flesh for God's truth. Now, many years later, I felt a conviction. It was while I was working at this church. And I felt a conviction about this argument with this young man. And so I sent him an email asking for forgiveness. And I got to be honest, we had both grown because he took this in stride. He talked about how he too had done a similar thing to somebody else. And he talked about how so much of my teaching was beneficial to him. And it was just the most gracious email I had ever received from someone that I was frustrated with. Now, my prayer for us as a church in 2023, doesn't that sound weird? What? Isn't it like 2010? What are we doing here? My prayer for us as a church is that we care about these scriptures. That we care about them, not more than we care about God, but knowing that the way in which we care about God is to affirm and obey what he says in his very scriptures. Verse 12 of Acts 17, as a result, many of them believed in Berea, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Now, many Berean Jews believed as they searched the scriptures and saw what Paul was saying was completely in line with what was written and also, many Greek women and Greek men believed unto the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things we ought to notice when we're reading a passage that we should take into account is when things seem to be reoccurring in a passage, which will often help us understand the emphasis of what the writer's trying to communicate. And this is the second time that Luke writes about prominent women here in Berea and also in verse 4 back in Thessalonica. Now, I read a note about this in a commentary regarding this as that there was a lot of evidence to show that there were a lot of uh, women in these Greek contexts that were, uh, that were upper class, and they had an affinity for Judaism, and so they would serve those in the Jewish faith. But I don't think it's too far a stretch to notice that these prominent women in the church, these Greek prominent women in the church, uh, in uh, Berea here, especially in Thessalonica, would become the early adopters of the Christian faith and be part of the early church in Thessalonica and Berea and were an example of God reaching both male and female, both wealthy and in need. That women who are in many religions in the culture of this day were looked at as second-tier citizens. But in Christ... A daughter of the Lord's was as loved as a son in the Lord. You hear me? And being adopted into God's family and being used for his glory was something that God would do in his church through both male and female. So here's your next reason to believe. The gospel of grace found in the person and work of Jesus is available to any and every type of person. Can I rant a little bit? Is that, is that allowed? If you say no, I'll just end the sermon here. You're like, no. 
The way people who do not understand the gospel talk about Christianity is like me attempting to talk to my kids about TikTok. I literally have no idea what it is or how it works or what the point is. But the gospel, the point is Jesus. And I don't care how you identify, I don't care about your sexual orientation or preference, how you vote, your opinions on professional sports, climate change, COVID, vaccines, flat earth, politics, Bible translations, if the dress is blue or yellow, or if you watch cat videos on YouTube, the gospel is available to you. Because Jesus is that good. And that's who we preach. And we don't preach anything else. And there are people that have come and gone because they're like, ah, can't you teach me something else? No! The gospel is the point, and it filters everything else. At 42, I'm like, I need a seat. Verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Okay, you can't ignore the zealousness of these Jews who were in Thessalonica. They were willing to travel 81 kilometers. And I know we're Americans, so we're like, what's that, a block? I have no idea. That's a little over 50 miles to agitate and stir up the crowd. This is what gospel This is what the gospel does to those who refuse to believe it. They act crazy. This is not a Yelp review. They walked 50 miles to oppose the idea that God in his plan would offer grace rather than rule keeping in order to be made right with God. This might be the sole message, church, that I want us to understand as a church. We ought to serve Christ, we ought to obey Christ, we ought to love Christ and care for others and be Christ-like, but none of that is because we are able, but because he is able and he does what he does through his grace in the people who receive his grace by faith. This is why we quote verses pretty consistently like these. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, listen to this. For it is by grace, getting what you don't deserve, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Sorry, Catholics, wrong. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That probably offends Muslims because they don't think God would come and do that. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5, Paul writes and says, but when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us. So Priya, I know you're watching online and that's our verse. I love talking about that verse with you. Paul writes to the church in Rome, chapter 4, speaking about Abraham The words, it was credited to him, Abraham, were written not for him alone, Abraham, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We were made right because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do. And then he goes on in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified, made right, 
Through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. One more. Paul writes to the church in Galatia and he says, know that a person is not justified by works, not justified by what they do, the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be made right. No one will be found not guilty, but because of Christ, we will. So here's your last reason to believe. Not ever, but this is what I'm gonna tell you. The Bible reveals that in Jesus, God supplies all that he requires of you. Let that sit with you for a second. The Bible reveals that in Jesus, God supplies all that he requires of you. It's not about working your way to him or trying to be good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, getting people to like you. It's about Jesus and his grace and receiving it by what? Faith. Verse 14, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Paul understood as well as anyone that there wasn't a thing that he, you, or I could do to work our way to God, but through Jesus, through his perfect life lived, his sacrificial death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the dead, we have access to God through faith in Jesus' finished work. That is what makes us righteous. That is what makes us holy. Not holier than thou, but it makes us set apart because we have embraced Christ's grace. That's what makes us a Christian, by believing this message rather than attempting to earn anything. And that message so agitated some of the Jews in Thessalonica that they traveled 50 miles and stirred up the crowd. And so Paul moved on to Athens to reason with some of the most brilliant minds on the Greek continent in Athens. But that will be where we continue next week. Worship team, would you come on up? I'm going to have to take a shower after this sermon. So follower of Jesus or person who is wondering why anyone would believe in Jesus, let me reiterate, here are some reasons to believe. Jesus suffered, and die, suffered, died, and rose again. Jesus fulfilled what was written. Jesus is the point of the entire Bible. The gospel is grace is found in the person and work of Jesus and is available to any and every type of person. And the Bible reveals that Jesus, in Jesus, God supplies you all that is required of you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that these words would not land on deaf ears, that your scriptures would be understood just a little bit more because of this time that we spent together. That for those of us who know and love you, that we love you a bit more and want to serve you and trust you a bit more. And for those of us who are yet to commit to you, God, that you'd stir something in us to want to embrace this grace that you give. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.